Hello, Burgundy Darkness, my old friend. This is Holding the High Line with Rabbi in Red. It is Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. My name is Matt Pollard, and we are brought to you by Icarus FC and Roughneck Scarves. Sam Vines has finally gotten a call up to the United States men's national team. Vinicius Jr. is dancing to clap back at the racist haters. And the Rapids are once again all but mathematically out of the hunt for the MLS Cup playoffs. I'm joined now by a man who he, who is here to tar and feather me and then tell the listeners that everything's going to be okay, but maybe next year, Rabbi Mark Goodman. Hey guys, how's it going? Everybody good tonight? How are you tonight, Matt? Uh, I'm, I'm okay, all things considered. Obviously, Saturday night was a very conflicting and ultimately difficult sporting evening for me as I was obviously organizing the Denver Canes big watch party for our game against Texas A&M and in typical recent Miami Hurricanes fashion mark on a nationally televised game against a big SEC opponent we did not play particularly well and we lost it was more competitive and closer than I was anticipating and of course the game wasn't going particularly well in the first quarter so I hmm let me check the rapid score and see what's happening um and ultimately, it was an interesting storyline from someone who covers both teams and feels conflicted uh, about that particular fixture uh, between those two teams, but ultimately one that I thought was one-sided and on the long list of things that could be happening that would have been interesting and compelling and fun to write about and fun to rewatch and think about, certainly a blowout one way or the other was not going to be interesting. Rabbi, how is your weekend? Um, how is, um, is it cooling down in Pittsburgh? Is fall on the, on the precipice? It is. It's raining a little bit. It's cooling a little bit. I went for a long run today. I slightly pulled a hamstring. Uh, I I wasn't feeling well last week, so uh, I missed uh, running. So I hadn't run in 10 days, so it was a little slower. Um, but at least I... Slow and long is uh, is not a bad thing to do. Um, but yeah, you know, school was uh, over this... Today's my day off. Tuesday's my day off. So um, rabbis, I don't know if you folks in the working world know this, but rabbis... Uh, pulpit rabbis generally work a six-day week. So, um, and if you happen to be a pulpit rabbi who is unfortunate, or any clergy who's unfortunate enough that you pick a day off in the middle of the week, and somebody dies, and they really need the funeral to be on that day, then there goes your day off. So, I haven't been unfortunate enough to miss my day off. Um, I, I definitely, though, uh, at forty-six years old, don't have the constitution to do these like six day weeks so i think that that's kind of kind of brutal and i don't know if it's gonna work long term uh hopefully i plan to take every last second of my vacation days uh at this year but of course we're getting ready for high holidays so matt you asked like how was your weekend and i the the nice woman who's the director of communications at the synagogue asked me that every monday and i roll my eyes and remind her that I work all weekend. So Sunday I worked a 12 hour shift basically. Um, 
Saturday, I didn't. I, I, I worked in the morning, and then I worked again in the evening. I put on a big program, so I was very busy. This was a very, very busy weekend, and Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, drops on Sunday night, Monday, and Tuesday, so I'll be up in Erie for that. I'll be uh, pounded with all those things, although this year, um, the cantor is flying from Israel, so uh, I won't have to sing that much, and it should be all right. It's not. It's not actually... Rosh Hashanah is not that heavy a lift. Yom Kippur, heavy lift. So um, that's that's the full update from uh, from my neck of the woods. You asked about the weather, and I whined about my job, which, you know, like, uh, I don't know if this is good content for the listeners or terrible content that people hit the fast forward button, but thank God that, that the Apple phone has that 30-second uh, swoopy. Most of my, most of our blessed listeners uh, are either either have a window into the world of working clergy or didn't hear any of this and are just waiting to see what happened with our game in San Jose. Yeah, um, I should say, Mark, we've got the facial hair game on lock so far this week. You are growing out the middle-aged rabbi beard that you got and everything. Um, and tonight, I got my hair cut today. I'm going, um, I will be missing, folks, the game in FC Dallas that will be in up in Bridgeton, Maine, I will be going to. So I've I've gotten the haircut for that, going to Miami to hang out with a buddy and then going to the wedding in Maine. It's a friend from college who's getting married. Um, and so I'm hanging out with my roommate for a little bit. And then I'll have the I'll have the like evil genius or like the almost Bond villain goatee and the mustache to go with it as well, Mark. That's what I'm working to. I'm I, I've been growing out the chinny chin chin hairs, and mine have gone gray. And uh, the rest of the beard I've just kind of kept neat and clean. So I'm trying to I'm trying to basically look like scholarly and intimidating, which the goal there is to keep congregants from either complaining. And also fooling them into thinking I'm more erudite and intelligent than I possibly actually am. The facial hair game of men in their 40s is really a thing. I've noticed it. All my buddies in their 40s are really working almost the exact same facial hair as me, or they're all doing something. I have no friends right now who are like 40, 45 years old who um, who don't have something going on unique with their facial hair. Like, we're all... You know, we're all just desperately trying to come up with something interesting, considering most of the hair on the tops of our heads is no longer there. Uh, Mark, one young man who is not working on his facial hair because he's working on his left back game is Sam Vines, who's been called up to the United States men's national team, along with Joe Scali and a number of other USMNT World Cup hopefuls. Obviously, Jedi Robinson unavailable for the game this past weekend for Fulham FC. We already know that Jedi is, you know, his injury, his ankle injury isn't anything long term. He should be good to go for that first game in Qatar. But it is a valid question who is going to be his backup at the World Cup once we get there. Mark and Sam Vines is potentially in contention for that. He has started and played very well for his club team in Belgium, Royal Antwerp. He has scored a goal for them. Last I checked, Mark, this might be wrong. I believe they were first or second in the Belgium Super League. So obviously they are playing well. He is playing well with them. And obviously they are looking to be competitive in Europa League as well. So good for them. Good for Sam Vines. Good for the United States men's national team. Mark, what do we make of Sam Vines? What do we want to see? from him is there a real plausibility that a former burgundy boy other than kellen acosta is going to the world cup with the united states men's national team given mark i would say i think vines was decent but not great in the gold cup what 
uh, 14, 15 months ago, right before, because ultimately, you know, he, I think he the transfer happened like later that week, so he did not play another game with the Colorado Rapids after getting called up for the Gold Cup. It made it, it was made official that he was going to Royal Antwerp, and then he played well enough. But then he got to Belgium and he got injured, and it took him a while to get settled in with that team and playing regularly. And over the course of the next following year, the next following two years, really, basically, Greg Berhalter, it, it became very apparent after that that Jedi Robinson was the superior superior physical athlete and then his defensive work rate made him the starter and then Triple G has basically cycled through every single other left back option and they've all been underwhelming and it's almost time perfectly that really all Sam Vines has to do is be better than all of those massive disappointments that we've seen for the last 18 months Rabbi your thoughts yeah that's that's well said um I mean so there there aren't that many options um and it's hard for me to keep both keep track of not only who's a left back and who's a right back, but who in in exigent circumstances could shift into playing left back. I really don't think GGG is interested in trying Kellen Acosta at left back quite like the Rapids used to when they were pressed into service. Um, but amongst fullbacks that this team has, Sergino Dest at the right back position is probably guaranteed to be the best option and Jedi Robinson at the left back position is pretty much guaranteed to be the best option. But after that, it's kind of all over the place, and it's really hard to tell who's your best option, who's available, um, who's likely to get a shot. Um, the last guy to start for uh, the U.S. at fullback, um, at the two fullback positions, uh, were Robinson and Reggie Cannon. Um, as far as I know, Cannon can't sub in on the left side, so... He's really not an option. Um, there's a couple other options potentially back there. Um, uh, DeAndre Yedlin, who mostly plays right back, um, but theoretically could play left back. Shaq Moore, who uh, I don't think has looked good. Uh, and I was doing some advanced. I'm doing the um, uh, holding the high line back pass player reviews already. And so I'm working on fullback. And so when I'm looking up statistics, I'm comparing them to other guys in the league. Shaq Moore's uh, G-plus numbers, his uh, goals added numbers, which is like an aggregate of all of a player's contributions. And of course, if a player makes a really fantastic pass in the final third, it's treated very differently than a, a, a very fantastic pass in their own half, right? Like, So like how much a given pass from one spot on the field to another contributes to a goal. Shaq Moore, in terms of his Overall numbers is not very good. Um, he's just really not great. Um, and then James Sands theoretically could play as a wide fullback, but he's really not. I mean, he's really just a defensive midfielder or a center back. And that's it. I've just named all of our fullbacks, right? It's Reggie Cannon. It's Jedi Robinson. It's Sam Fines, Shaq Moore, DeAndre Yedlin, uh, and Sergino Death. And I think, uh, based on what I've seen of his early season play, in the Dutch league and um, from what I saw last year at the end of last season and from his work in the Gold Cup, I think he's the second best option, no doubt. And I think he's a really solid player. Um, I think he's been very good so far this year. He scored his first goal already um, just a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, I I am trying... This is, a, this is a long-winded way to say I'm trying not to get my hopes up because... Basically, I will lose my freaking mind, Matthew, if um, a guy that I've spoken to face-to-face 
is on the U.S. men's national team in a World Cup match, right? Like, I don't know about you, like the only other opportunity I've had to speak with a, well, you've had you've had at least one of these two, but um, a couple years ago when the Rapids were in uh, CONCACAF Champions League in 2017, I was interviewing, I just realized this, Enzo Martinez in the mix zone after our match uh, against Toronto when we lost under Anthony Hudson. And I got up to, to leave and I couldn't leave because the hallway was the mix zone and it was really full. And there was Michael Bradley standing right next to me. And so I just stood there with my jaw open watching Michael Bradley get interviewed. And the only other player I've interviewed who played, you know, national team ball that you know is is Tim Howard. You and I both spent a lot of time uh, talking to Tim Howard over the years and really enjoyed that. So, but it's it's still a kick. I mean, you know, I, you and I, like, I think we sometimes try and be dispassionate um, journalists, but I think we also refer to ourselves often as citizen soccer journalists, right? Citizen soccer fan journalist type blogger podcaster types. Um, and I think it's disingenuous as an individual to say anything other than I would be really excited if a guy that I used to talk to all the time and watch all the time in matches and practice and so on is on the field of guitar. I'll be excited. Yeah, well, I'd include Kellen Acosta for me, Mark. I'm not right. sure if you had any. Him yes. Too. So a number of them. Yeah, we, we've almost got a five aside squad going here. But wait, Mark. did Kellen Acosta, but Kellen Acosta never went to a World Cup. That was my criterion. That was my criterion. Will he go? But he will go. You never know, Mark. Jossie could score fifty goals in his <laughs> final two games for the Rapids, and then he could be on the he could be on the flight to the World Cup. But but he's probably going, is what you're saying, right? Kellen Acosta is going. I believe so. All right. Uh, last thing that I have to say about this, Mark, uh, with the I, I'm not sure if this is the COVID thing. I don't know if this is a World Cup during the middle of the European season thing, but it is updated, folks. It's a 26-man roster, not a 23-man roster. So effectively, you're not bringing a fourth goalkeeper probably. So it's probably for most teams thinking one forward attacker, one actual midfielder, not like a winger or a number 10, and then one outs and then one defender as well that you're bringing in addition to that usual 23. And so I wonder, Mark, given kind of the uncertainty that you have at the center back position, just because I think it's I think it's Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman in Sharpie for that Wales game and then everybody else is basically in the same tier together you know Sam Bynes might not necessarily not necessarily be competing directly against a Joe Scally or DeAndre Edlin for Greg Berhalter's internal roster calculus to be, do I want to bring five fullbacks and four center backs or the other way around? He might just be competing for, can I just be at a level that is, this is good enough for Greg Berhalter to be a World Cup player, a player that fits into the system and then really better against the center backs where there's a massive gap after the two and it's kind of, you know, can I bring in some guy that brings in something slightly different and can I bring in a guy who's not going to be a prop problem if he's not starting. And in terms of Berhalter thinking that then those four locks for the center back position are secured, and then it would be more beneficial to bring five fullbacks, I think is an interesting question. Um, let's move on, Rabbi. Uh, listener, as I will put in the show notes, uh, a timestamp for when we are done talking about Welcome to Wrexham, but Mark and I are both caught up. So spoiler alert, spoiler alert, if you're not caught up, Pause the episode right now, look in the show notes, and then forward to that time stamp, and then you will be good to go. Uh, Mark, what do we think? I think we're, what, six episodes in by now? We've obviously seen – yes, so we, we've seen the overturn of the roster from the club that Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds inherited. We've seen the kind of fad side of things as they had the vote on – 
whether or not that they wanted to sell the club to the team. And we've seen them start to get into the weeds, really, of what it's like operating a football club and what that means financially, what that means culturally, what that means in the community. The grass won't grow, so they have to grow more grass. Yeah, and then dealing with, you know, real fan issues of, you know, fans, you know, volunteering and, oh, you know, the, um, you know, the race course does not have, you know, proper, I don't know what the, the term is, but here in the U.S. we'd say ADA. I'm sure there's equivalent in the United Kingdom of having to deal with. And they didn't even own, they couldn't legally do the work on the stands because they didn't legally own the stands. So it took them like months of just figuring out with the city how to get ownership over the stands that had been sold over to somebody else. Yeah, and then recent on a recent episode, Mark, there was actually a game where surprised the two of them showed up and watched an away game, and you saw the jubilation from Wrexham fans of like, oh my god, our owners are here, I can interact with them and take photos of them, and they're cheering on the team just like we are, and then along with them getting heckled with the, uh, I, I can't remember, at Mansfield. You brought the wrong team. You brought, you brought the, the wrong, wrong team. team. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, Reynolds you, you brought, brought the, the wrong, wrong team. team. <laughs> What are they saying? Uh, they, they say you bought the wrong team. Oh, <laughs> it's a great moment. So, so Mark, what do, what do we think so far? I like it. I mean, I think that the, the, I think one of the challenges of doing a show like this is you could just do welcome to Sunderland part two or Ted Lasso part two, right? Um, Ted Lasso leans in on heartwarming and character development, right? Um, and Sunderland deals with palace intrigue and kind of like challenges and like that very standard, like document documentary style behind the scenes. And so I think one of the things that they, they know they wanted to do is accentuate the reality that you're turning into welcome to Wrexham because you want to see Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney do stuff. And so the whole seventh episode where they do a little history of Wales and there's a lot of comedy and there's a cooking show and there's a talk show and it's like ridiculous and it doesn't entirely make sense. And you're like, what the hell are they doing? I thought that was great. I mean, it wasn't like the best television ever, but I think just watching Ryan Reynolds crack wise and and make fun is really fun. I think the one interesting thing to watch um, as a television watcher and as a human being who mostly agrees with our president in the sense that, uh, don't send us hate mail, um, that the pandemic is over, right? The pandemic isn't over, over, but the pandemic is primarily over. We are now watching television from the last two years that was produced during the pandemic and using it as like a history time capsule. There's that word time again, Matt. Um, and, and in this case, like we're watching them buy a team during the pandemic and watch this struggling national league team in the fifth tier, try and figure out like financially, how do we keep afloat when we can't have any fans in the stands and there's no TV revenue in the fifth tier of English football. So, um, and it reminds us as Rapids fans of like, Oh yeah, there was that whole MLS is back tournament in the bubble. It was all crazy. Two whole teams couldn't come because they had COVID outbreaks and, we did. We watched a whole season of soccer with like nobody in the stands. It was nuts. I mean, like, everything was nuts. Um, so that's that's kind of enjoyable to watch. And I think the last thing I'll say is this, which is um, I think that the difference between Sunderland and Wrexham and Ted Lasso is Wrexham has done a much better job of focusing on supporters, right? 
taking a couple supporter stories and watching them and trying to figure out, like, why do you love this team so much? Matt, what's your take? How do you like it? I like it. It's certainly, it's more lighthearted. You know, Sunderland was almost, what well, Sunderland Till I Die was almost perfectly timed in terms of what they, uh, in terms of when they arrived and what they tried to cover. Uh, Billy Corbin, who went to the University of Miami, who I've had some online interactions with, he's done a bunch of documentaries, Cocaine Cowboys. He did the two 30 for 30 ESPN documentaries on the University of Miami football team, the U. And he has two rules for documentaries. Find a really good story and don't F it up. And Sunderland Until I Die was great. And they showed up thinking this is going to be the rebirth of the club. They're in the championship. They're going to get promoted. And they in real time document a disastrous season and then a almost spectacular resurrection on top of that. And so I think they've timed it well, albeit intentionally and almost in a, you know, like they've, there's part of me that's wondering, Mark, did, because you know, they start filming in the midst of them trying to buy the club. Like there's there's a multiverse scenario here where they where they film a bunch of stuff thinking this is going to be the first episode of us just buying, you know, Wrexham. And then the fans vote no. And basically all that film was on the cutting room floor. You know, Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds never talk to each other in person again, potentially. And then none of this ever sees the light of day. So there's a part of me that's kind of wondering, like, did... Rob McElhenney initially start watching Sunderland Until I Die, Ted Lasso, a bunch of this other stuff, get enamored with that, that get him then interested in owning a club. Did they buy the club to do a documentary or are they doing the documentary simultaneously while interested in the two projects, the documentary about owning the club and then physically owning the club as well? I think McElhenney pretty clearly through the episodes that we've seen has his heart in the right place. He's taken on the more hands-on ownership parts of things and Ryan Reynolds is maybe more of a... Phil Anschutz, I don't want to compare him to Kroenke, to be honest, but, you know, maybe, um, you know, an owner that's invested financially, invested emotionally, but isn't thinking about it on a day-to-day basis. They're doing their other things and then appointing good people, the right people, in order to then execute on their vision. Um, I think it's very lighthearted. I think it's very honest. I think they're very self-deprecating in a way that kind of shows that they don't take themselves too seriously. That's diff. Right. I think I think I want to just say real quick. There are all these clips where it's very clear when they're watching football that they really don't know much about football, which is really funny. And unlike Todd Bowley, the owner for Chelsea, who had his, you know, own kerfuffle of press conference in the past week as well, where he suggested that there be a Premier League North versus South All-Stars, I think both of these two are, they admit what they don't know, and they're seeking to learn rather than impose their own, you know, um, Luddite views on the game or on trying to own the team. And so I think that's very genuine. Um, And if I compare it, Mark, to say the other documentaries that you've seen that have been produced in-house, like the Amazon documentary, the All or Nothing series, where the club that is involved has a lot of control on the production and the final product as well. The uh, Juventus documentary series that I can't remember whether it's Amazon or Netflix is basically Juventus propaganda. Like, it's Juventus state-run media and everything. And so the fact that they're lighthearted, the fact that it's more genuine, the fact that they're open to receiving their criticism and everything and dogging each other. And there's a part of me that, again, similar to the question of, did they... 
are they doing the documentary because they bought the team or did they buy the team so that Rob McElhaney could have fun doing a documentary when he's not filming This Is Sunny? Um, you know, kind of that's my maybe one question about that, along with the fact that these are two actors. So are they, you know, are they trying to portray the image that they want to be rather than their genuine selves? I don't follow the two of them particularly well enough from like their acting career to know like what are they like in person. You know, I feel like I paid attention to enough of Tom Hanks and there's enough media around Tom Hanks that Tom Hanks is the person you want to believe that he genuinely is based on the public persona that he presents to the media when he knows that the camera is on him. I want to believe that it's true for the two of them. I haven't done my research because I don't particularly care, but I'm enjoying the series. It's a breath of fresh air. Um, and Mark, if we could just have this rapid season end and then have Welcome to Wrexham happen and not too much gap between that and season three of Ted Lasso, um, I think I'll be fine soccering wise, regardless of what happens at the World Cup. It really depends on how we do in rebuilding for next year, but that's for a podcast in the future. Listeners, this past Wednesday at Dick's Sporting Goods Park, the Colorado Rapids played the San Jose Earthquakes 2A21 victory for the Burgundy Boys, and it was not a particularly good match for the Rapids. San Jose starts well. Cade Cowell was an absolute live wire and at times got the best of Keegan Rosenberry, especially in the first half, and the Rapids really just could not deal with the press and then counterattacking from the San Jose Earthquakes, but nonetheless, the Rapids get on the board first in the 21st minute. Diego Rubio scores uh, off of a cross that is blocked by Jonathan Lewis to make it 1-0. William Yarbrough with a save off of uh, Jao Montero set up by Cade Cal in the 36th minute. That springs a corner upon which the San Jose Earthquakes would score a minute later. Nathan with a header on the near post that sneaks through William Yarbrough with a bunch of traffic in front of him set up by Christian Espinoza who provided the corner. Cade Cowell hits the crossbar and makes the sound of a cowbell in the 69th minute uh, and then in the 77th minute mark with the game kind of second half kind of got a little bit more even not a whole lot of chances even though both teams got the ball into a good area and it was kind of I was looking at this game mark and I was thinking it's headed for 1-1 if we don't see a spectacular individual moment I was thinking it was going to come from KCAL but it came from the you know biannual uh, triannual scorcher from Keegan Rosenberry in the 77th minute set up from Max, his first primary assist for the Colorado Rapids in MLS play, and Diego Rubio takes a touch forward and then just on a rope mark. I don't know if you saw the secondary replay that they had behind the net and everything, but that bent in a way that Mark Kanich was never going to get to it. And then really the only big opportunity after that mark was Jeremy Abobasi going over the bar. Um, on after he got in behind in the 85th minute. The Rapids did not play well, Mark. They admitted as such in the post-game media availability, but at this point in the season, it was mostly about the points, and in that regard, it was something to build on DC United. They did not build on that with the LA Galaxy, but we'll get in that, to that in a minute. Rabbi, your thoughts? You know, I think I understood uh, the, the players and the manager's frustration in this game. The nice thing about San Jose is you don't have to be flawless in order to beat them. I mean, if you took this game, basically, if you took this game and you played it against Philadelphia a couple days earlier, which is basically what we got, the Rapids were just as maybe a little bit better in this match uh, against, but uh, by comparison to Philadelphia, but like this was, this performance is the difference between the bottom of the table and the top of the table, right? Like, I hope that that made some sense when it came out of my mouth, because I've had half a glass of wine. I cracked open a bottle of wine last night for a meeting that I was having, and now I feel like I need to drink the rest of the bottle of wine before it goes lousy in, in the fridge, and 
you know, for our listeners, like I'm usually a bourbon at night guy and sometimes a beer. The problem with beer is it makes me kind of sleepy and tired. But, you know, I I might become a wine drinker after this. I'm not sure. Anyways, point being, um, yeah, they played fine. Um, yeah, you. I think you nailed it by, by pointing out the Keegan Rosenberry Thunderbolt. I think one of the weird things about like doing player recaps as you go through is you're looking back at when a player had their best game. And sometimes like this is one of the things we're doing and I'm doing in, in the player by player um, reviews is looking at a player's best moment. This was Keegan Rosenberry's best moment of the season. That was his, his big shining, like awesomeness because it's, you know, it's a game winner, which is really fantastic. But um, when we break down the numbers on Keegan Rosenberry, our our uh, readers will see that like he didn't really have a great year, you know, compared to past years. He's kind of in the decline, and things are not going very well. So that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, this game was, um, you know, kind of just like yeah, we we have to win this game. But even if we do win this game, the odds that we make it to the playoffs are not very good. Right now, we're still in the holding pattern of trying to figure out as a team uh, what do these games mean. Uh, do they mean anything? And if they sort of mean something. Is that not just inconvenient because all we're doing is delaying the ability for young players and for bench players to get some run and to give the starters a rest? Yeah, well said, Mark. You know, I, I think obviously the big thing, the only good thing that I have written down is Keegan Rosenberry. Well, I, I should say there's two things, Mark. One, because Keegan Rosenberry scored the goal. And two, because we got probably one of the last really good goal calls from uh, our very own Richard Fleming, who described it as an absolute scorcher. So I will be absolutely missing uh, Richard Fleming, you know, in a couple weeks. A really good piece in the Denver Post, folks, by um, our intrepid reporter and friend Brendan Plone on Richard Fleming and Marcelo Baboa and them covering the team. Go ahead and check that out when you get the opportunity. But uh, I want to move on to bad things, Mark, which is just, you know, all the things that we've seen that's been emblematic of the Rapids being a bad team, particularly recently and on that road trip of just dealing with the press of the opponent and the um, issues that they had with that. I look at set pieces and even with Jack Price back in this game, you know, they still haven't been the same threat that they usually are. Lal Sabubakar, momentary heroics notwithstanding. And really, they've been they become a weaker team defensively on set pieces. They've given up opportunities to Christian Benteke. Obviously, the goal that they had scored by the San Jose Earthquakes came off a set piece and right at the near post as well. You know, where was somebody marking that? And if I look back at the replay, Mark, I see Danny Wilson was kind of yelling at somebody and I I don't know who's at fault there, Mark. We haven't done a deep dive into the defensive systems of this team in the same way that we look at the offensive set pieces and, oh, is it an in-swinger or is it an out-swinger? Oh, are they doing a Loki Stavagen or a Russia, as we found out from Jack (laughs) Price maybe a month ago or so? And so this team's not as good defensively on set pieces, Mark. And it feels like every single time the Rapids give up a goal on a set piece, at some point, Danny Wilson is yelling at somebody. And is that Danny's fault? Did he do something wrong? Is he looking for something to blame? Is there something in the system that's fault? Or was somebody supposed to do something in a way that then Danny's just trying to be a leader? I'm not entirely sure. We also saw the exact same thing with Austin Trusty when they had three center backs, three center backs that are good in the air earlier in the season as well. So regardless of whether it's a back three or a back five, three center backs or two center backs on the field. It has not been good enough defensively on 
set pieces. And, you know, just to highlight it, Mark, you know, the Rapids said as much that they didn't play well. You know, I asked Danny Wilson about second half um, adjustments and everything. And he said, you know, we've played better. That's evident. Uh, we didn't have to change anything in the second half. We just had to play better. I don't think we did play better. We've played well at times this season. We played better at times this season and lost heavily. Tonight was about the result. We take it and move on. I'll give it, Mark, that tonight was about, that night was about the result. So good on Keegan Rosenberry for giving the team a 2-1 win that should have been a 1-1 draw, or I think realistically, Kate Cowell's probably thinking that should have been a 2-1 win for the San Jose Earthquakes. He gets that shot that goes off the crossbar a foot lower, and that's in the back of the net. San Jose probably shuts up shop, and then I think finds a way to get a 2-1 victory. Um, So I'll give it to Danny. It was about the result. Good on Keegan Rosenberry for getting the result. They took it, and they did not move on, however. And so kind of my big thing, Mark, is, you know, that I've been harping on the last couple shows. I think I really said it last week, though, is that the wins that the Rapids have gotten recently have not been against good teams, or when they've been against good teams, they've been against teams that are shorthanded. Vancouver didn't have their two best attackers. Uh, New York Red Bulls, I think it was their fourth game in 12 days or something like that, and they had played a friendly over the weekend against Barcelona, and even that was a crazy game that could have been 5-4 to New York, or 5-5, even though the Rapids won that 5-4, and then Minnesota had three players missing as well. So last time the Rapids maybe beat a team that I thought was good um, was when they beat the LA Galaxy when I think uh, Jossie's artists had a brace against his former team. And the last time they beat a good team that played well against them, particularly in, at Dick's Sporting Goods Park, I would say was their 1-0 um, you know, battle with Seattle. And that was back, what, before 4th of July as well. This team has picked up points. This team has picked up points, but ultimately, I don't think they have a quality win mark. And to your point, that was the difference between the the proof that the Rapids are a mid-table team is that they didn't play well and they found a way to beat a bad team that was playing well. And I think proof of concept that would have been that they are a playoff team would have been them playing well and then beating San Jose and it not being close rather than being absolutely outclassed in the first half. And I think, for unfortunately, Mark, that was a warning shot for what was ultimately the very real reality check on the weekend anything else you want to say about san jose mark or shall we move on to the bad game well i just wanted to do the fact check thing that you love uh to to bring in which is you were pretty close on that uh jossie zardes um brace it was actually a jossie zardes hat trick against minnesota um which is pretty astounding considering how much um he has struggled this year he had goals at the 7th 15th and 61st minute as we dismantled the loons way back on august but I think your point is really well taken. Um, And actually, the reason that I knew that was because in both this game and the game that we're about to talk about, the game against the Galaxy, Jossie Zardes had no goals. And I also just think he was kind of invisible. And I don't know what's up with that. I mean, it's always easy to pick on the striker for not being particularly productive um, in a match, but it's... uh, Always easy to do that only because you may not be looking at the bigger trends. In this case, I think Jossie Zardes was kind of like all out by his lonesome for a lot of, for both of these games that he just wasn't particularly in a place to score. But, you know, overall, like the other thing I was going to say was um, our expected goals in this game was lower than San Jose's. I believe we were at a neg, we were at a expected goals of uh, 0.79 and they were at a like a 0.13, uh, 1.31. So they produced better chances, and we finished better than they did, and that's all that matters sometimes. And so I'm not as pessimistic on this game because um, we had some good finishing despite not having as many chances. Throughout the rest of the season, we've generally had the opposite problem, Matt, which is uh, we've had uh, 
good chances that we didn't convert on. So this game was like, you know, kind of a bright spot. And, you know, to your point also about um, the end of the Fleming and Balboa era, um, that was like definitely one of the reasons to watch this game and, and be wistful. And, and, you know, looking at what's been on Twitter today and yesterday, um, kind of talking about going forward, like we really are going off into the unknown. We're going over the waterfall into completely unknown space about like who is going to call Rapids broadcast last year, n- next year, and what's it going to sound like? Um, being here in Pittsburgh, we also dropped our local broadcaster during the pandemic and pick up the USL broadcast. We were lucky that the like main three guys in the USL rotation know and like the Riverhounds very well. They've had a very stable team. They've had the same coach. Um, but you just don't know. And and you and I have both heard enough soccer commentators to know that like next year we could get people who um, are kind of generic about the whole league and just read off of the um, uh, the, the press releases and, and don't really have anything deep to add. The flip side of that is there's been some folks out there who I've been really impressed with, you know, um, John Strong at uh, Fox Sports uh, has always done a really good job. Rob Stone also. Um, uh, um, the the uh, uh, Brian Dunsworth in uh, in RSL at RSL. Brian Dunseth, really Mark. Dunseth, Dunseth. Um, and I may be saying that Matt as a, a completely biased because occasionally I'll tweet at him and he'll literally say it on air. So, um, but I do feel like he tries his best to be. Um, you know, he's a big homer. There's no doubt about it. He loves his RSL, but he likes to be informed about the opposing team. Whereas I would say there's about half the teams in the league where I feel like they don't know who the hell they're talking about when they talk about the Colorado Rapids. And I'll miss that in our if, if we lose our guy. Dunny Mark also likes breaking the fourth wall in a way that winds up his haters or people that he thinks are trying to get one up on him. In that regard, he he's taken a page out of the Alexi Lawless playbook there. But uh, one more fact check for me, uh, for myself, folks. I said earlier in the pod that I thought that Zardis scored a brace against the LA Galaxy. That game would have been... That game would have been on July 16th, and it actually would have been a Zardis goal and a Diego Rubio goal as well. Nice. So I, so we, we split the difference. I fixed your mistake, but it wasn't exactly the right fix to the right mistake. Yes. Oh, well. um, speaking of a bunch of— Still love you, brother. Still love you. Speaking of a bunch of mistakes that needed the right fixes and didn't get them, Mark, uh, this past Saturday, the Colorado Rapids lost to the LA Galaxy by a score of 4-1. to one. I'm not going to do a whole— They did not play particularly well. 22nd minute— uh, 1-0, Brugman scores going up the middle, getting past three defenders. That was did not look good on the center backs. That was his first MLS goal. For those of you who haven't been following the LA Galaxy folks, basically other than Jovalik scoring a bunch and then Chicharito when he's feeling the vibes, the LA Galaxy attack is fairly one-dimensional, and so their wingers and their midfielders don't contribute a lot in goals. When you're getting dunked on by a Brugman or a Kevin Cabral or a Samuel Grancier, that is very bad. 28th minute, 2-0 LA Galaxy. Uh, Edwards dribbles up, basically scores on his own, basically does a Maradona with Keegan Rosenberry getting dunked on as well. Price tries to slide tackle, Edwards sidesteps and puts in the back of the net. Another fantastic goal that makes the Rapids look like golden cones. 31st minute, it's 3-0, Chicharito with a heel flick from Julian Araujo. Um, Chicharito went between the center backs, heel flick, I thought William Yarbrough at the near post there could have done better, and Betashur gets beat by Julian Araujo on the initial run to set up the cross to Chicharito. Then 
minutes, 4-0 in the 52nd minute. Brugman, um, you know, pulls a Keegan Rosenberry and scores a banger of his own, undoes Lalas <laughs> Bubakar in the process. Uh, Mark Diego Costa got a red card in there somewhere for uh, bumping up against Michael Barrios and sending him to ground. And then he gets into the face of Felipe Gutierrez. Does Gutierrez make a meal of it? Yes. Is that still contact to the face or head in ways that should be a straight red card? Yes. Mark, it's not clear to me which one of those two is a red card. I think both of them at minimum are yellow. So I don't know that it really does matter. And so uh, the Rapids do get a goal up a man, albeit in garbage time. 90th minute plus one, Sam Nicholson set up um, from Michael uh, Sam Nicholson set up from Michael Barrios cross that ultimately is headed by Kuabali right to Nicholson who then scores Darren Yappi Mark I thought had a couple really good sniffs albeit again in garbage time it's been unfortunate Mark for Yappi that he's come in and worked really hard and had good performances but it's normally been in like non-competitive moments to where he can't even play like simulate a real soccer game because it's basically oh we're gonna lose let's save Giassi's artist's legs let's put on Darren Yappi. Yappi's going to try really hard, even though it won't ultimately matter. Um, Mark, this was bad. Where do you want to start? Yeah, um, because I'm doing reviews and I'm watching other games, that what jumps to mind, so two things. One, what jumps to mind immediately in watching this game is the Philly game. Um, and that's pretty dramatic in the sense that Philly, you know, tore the Rapids apart, beating them six to nothing. The thing that was really common between these two games is both the Galaxy and the Union really got out against the Rapids in transition and just just destroyed them. And that was really interesting to watch that like the team like very much by design of the coach had decided to kind of throw guys forward and put themselves in a position where they were um, potentially exploitable in in um in transition the other piece that's semi-related to that is kind of a kellen acosta jack pricey kind of piece which is price's ability to ping and this is not a new thing if you probably went back three seasons into our first year on the podcast you would find this um jack price's asset to this team is his regista um ability to uh andrea perlo ping balls into fantastic places and just really his, his ridiculous uh, um, cultured foot uh, delivering the pass from deep locations is, is what really is what's best about him. Um, he covers a lot of ground. He's not the world's greatest defender and that's not a slam on Jack. Um, it's just not, he's just not by comparison to other players uh, of an, a parallel ability and in an equal position It's just not his forte. Um, And that really sticks out in transition against teams like the Galaxy that like we needed kind of a lockdown center back who can kind of get back in in a hurry and shield and defend and kill and and really do something to stop the the counter. And we didn't really have that guy. Um, The other thing that I noticed that was related to that was Stephen Betashore was kind of constantly floating high in this game. Um, in this in, in a position where he wasn't there to kind of like eliminate attacks. Um, he either wasn't even in the frame while LA Galaxy were on the counterattack or in the play that uh, went from Julian Araujo to Chicharito for the filthy back heel, he was poorly positioned to make any play on the ball on the first pass. Then Araujo's got him dead to rights. He can't get to him. 
And then he, you know, he sprints down the sideline, dishes the pass in, you know, kind of like around and, and beyond uh, Beta Shore, and Chicharito back heels it right into the goal. And we're down 3 nothing, and the game is effectively over. And we're not even at, I think, minute 30 at that point. Um, and that was really bad. And, and that's, I can't tell whether that's on Robin Frazier or if that's on Stephen Betashore for, um, for deciding to kind of position him as far up as he was. So um, looking at his numbers, Betashore's uh, defensive numbers over the year are actually the best amongst our fullbacks. So I was a little bit shocked at that. But like, all right. Now that I've said that, which is a lot of words uh, and a lot of analysis and, a, and brilliant erudition on my own part, Matt, I was very, very astute. I made some some very intelligent analyses, which are, of course, totally irrelevant because um, this season was over two games ago when they drew DC. Like they 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 needed to win five games in a row um, after drawing DC. And at that point, it was like, well, that's not going to happen. So let's just call the season dead. And, and move on. Then they gave us, like, I wouldn't say hope <laughs> against San Jose, but they strung us along and said, we're really not dead for another day. They're officially not dead right now either, except if you look at American Soccer Analysis's statistics on the percentage chance for the Rapids to make the playoffs, it's zero, right? It's zero. Now, the 538 numbers say we have a 1% chance. So, um, you know, I would say that I, I don't know the exact math, but I'm guessing it's less than 0.5%. Matt's going to go over why why this is, uh, you know, what, what what it would take to get the Rapids into the playoffs. Um, and it would take a series of small miracles, followed by a series of large miracles, followed by uh, a series of complete and utter disbelief-type miracles. So um, it's pretty ridiculous. Matt, any other thoughts tactically or professionally about this match? Um, Sam Nicholson reopens his Rapids account, Mark. I don't know if we can officially say that. It's his second stint with the club. He scores his first goal since returning to the club. So, I mean, yay for him. That's something for him to maybe feel better about his contributions and his performances coming back to the team and not being able to help turn the season around and maybe something for to motivate and help him as he goes into his offseason routine thinking that, okay, like I got back to a level to where I could be a productive player, where I was able to be a player that score. I can be the player that I once was with the Rapids and I have really been for a number of reasons so far since returning to them you know jack price mark uh with some pretty scathing comments and i should say fair to him mostly taking responsibility on this something that i know a lot of rapids fans have kind of been upset with members of the front office and with robin frazier like acknowledging the elephant in the room is now the elephant in the room isn't being quiet like it's actively breaking stuff and everything which is the season's been bad it's been a disappointment the team's gonna miss the playoffs like it's time to do it's time to at least starting internally doing the mental autopsy on what went wrong and what needed to be better rather than thinking let's ignore all of that and just focus on trying to get results to make the playoffs because it's over and Jack Price said that post game by saying bad day at the office not too much I can say to be honest disappointed in myself and as a team we weren't good enough from the start that was one of the worst 45 minutes I've had in a rapid shirt in a while so I'll take responsibility for that end quote and ultimately Mark I think just to 
you know, reiterate your points that, you know, they made mistakes against a team that's capable offensively, and ultimately they paid for it and they lost very badly. And that's just where you and I, Rabbi, in this podcast has been, you know, kind of signaling the alarm bells that ultimately the win against Vancouver, the win against San Jose, and the draw against DC were false positives, or at the very least, noise as opposed to signal. The signal is the game against Philly, the game against Nashville, this game, and it will probably signal that in what I'll think will be at best a hard-fought and maybe undeserved draw against FC Dallas, and we'll see what decision day looks like because Austin might not have anything to fight for because they're pretty much locked into the two-seat at this point, and maybe it's starting a bunch of kids and telling them to pass to Sebastian Driussi so he can inflate his goal numbers to try and win MVP, and in that regard... Austin won't have something to play for from a results perspective, and maybe the Rapids will play a bunch of the kids and Darren Yappi will score a goal because, you know, it's Darren Yappi. Um, so that's all I have to say about the LA Galaxy. Moving on, Mark, let's talk uh, playoff odds and everything and all what needs to happen for the Colorado Rapids in order for them to qualify for the playoffs. So I'm going to do the long-winded fer- version, Fos Ferks. I'm going to do the long-winded version first folks and then we can talk about what needs to happen for the rapids to get eliminated by the end of the matches on october 1st because i think that's a much simpler way of thinking about it result by result so here's everything that needs to happen mark the one percent chance according to 538 the zero percent chance according to american soccer analysis all these things happen the rapids make the playoffs rapids need to win against dallas and austin the la galaxy need to lose to san jose and houston and tie rsl portland wins or ties a against RSL. RSL ties against the LA Galaxy, loses or ties to Portland. Seattle can't accumulate more than five points in their remaining three games. They play this coming Tuesday against FC Cincinnati. They have a bunch of players out for international duty. Probably going to lose that game. And then Vancouver cannot accumulate more than four points in their final two games. Or Vancouver gets exactly five points, but the Colorado Rapids somehow manage to get a better goal difference than uh, than the Vancouver Whitecaps. Vancouver currently sitting on minus 17 and Colorado currently sitting on minus 12. That was a lot, folks. Here is the TLDR version. For those of you that are just waiting for the season to be over, any of these things happen, the Colorado Rapids are eliminated from playoff contention on or before October 1st. One, the LA Galaxy play their Cali Classico game at Stanford Stadium that got rescheduled. They play it this Saturday. It's the only game of the weekend, so if you have nothing to do on Saturday night, you can watch this game. LA Galaxy at San Jose against on September 24th. Galaxy win. Rapids are out. Galaxy lose or draw against FC Dallas. They are out. Gal- or Rapids lose or draw to FC Dallas. They are out. Rapids need to beat Dallas on October 1st. Later that night, LA Galaxy play RSL. And if either team gets a win in that game, gets three points, then the Colorado Rapids are out. So if you're talking about this, you want the Galaxy to lose to San Jose. And then you probably want to draw between those two teams because then that means, you know, because then somebody isn't getting three points. So then there's somebody to catch up on. Mark, I don't think all three of those things are going to happen. I don't think the Galaxy are going to win against San Jose. Quakes are out of the playoffs. They have nothing left to play for. This is effectively their MLS Cup. The Galaxy don't normally win at Stanford Stadium. I think the Galaxy get a win. I think the Gal- I think the San Jose gets a win, but I don't think the Rapids will get a win against Dallas. I think a draw or a loss is more likely. So I think that is how the Rapids will get eliminated. Mark, your thoughts on all this probability and ultimately are we just are we just doing a long-winded fact check on a thing that didn't need this? 
No, I think I think it's fun to do this. I think it's. I mean, it's 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 no less important than us making predictions and matches that we ultimately know are futile and ridiculous because we're usually wrong. Um, a la this, you know, welcome to Wrexham and watching both McElhenney and and uh, Ryan Reynolds be unbelievably wrong in their predictions. That was enjoyable for me, Matt, because you and I make bad predictions all the time. Um, no, I think the the likelihood of the way the Rapids go out, I disagree with you. I think that the Galaxy are going to be amped up and motivated. They looked supercharged and very up for this game against the Rapids. And I think that's one thing we didn't mention in the recap of the last game. I was talking about how good the gals were in transition. I think to be that good in transition, you have to be like just kind of a gung-ho, damn the torpedoes, go, go, go mentality, which the, the Galaxy, they, they look like they came out of the, the locker room, like all charged up and excited for that. Um, I feel like they'll play that way against San Jose. I feel like San Jose are going to get flattened, and that's how the Rapids are going to go out, meaning it doesn't matter how they play in Dallas. If the Galaxy beat San Jose, the Rapids can't make the playoffs. Um, I don't know how the Rapids are going to do against Dallas. I think there's that a, that a draw feels likely. The last time they played the Rapids, um, Brandon Servania had that ridiculous right before the half banger from way out. Um, and it ultimately felt like Dallas and the Rap- the Rapids outplayed Dallas and Dallas got the win anyways. The, the final game of the season is the real problem, right? The Rapids are going to be taking on Sebastian Driussi and, and, um, and Austin. Austin won't have anything to play for in that game. They're too far below LAFC at this point, realistically, unless something happens this weekend. Um, to or to next weekend to um, to win the West, and they're too far ahead of third to drop down. Um, that game might be totally meaningless. However, Driussi and Hani Mukhtar might be going into the final game dueling for MVP numbers, and I would not want to have to be the team that faces a guy who wants to be MVP, right? Um, and also, this is the most ridiculous thing. In the event, and this was JSP Sam's, uh, Joe Samuelson said this online. He said this it was a very great uh, point that I had not thought of at the time. In the unlikely event that the Colorado Rapids go ahead and everything lines up perfect for them, and all the things that you mentioned that have to happen, happen, and the Rapids beat Dallas, and the Rapids beat um, Austin, who are a juggernaut of a team in second place in the Western Conference, you know who they would face in the first round of the playoffs? Austin FC. Austin FC. So they'd have to. So not only do the Rapids have to beat Dallas, followed by Austin, which is a pretty difficult thing to do. They'd have to then beat Austin again um, in order to make it happen. So I mean, I don't think the Rapids are going to the playoffs. But even if they were going to the playoffs, they're going to be facing Austin two games in a row. Doesn't look good. No, it does not look good at all. Mark, uh, Rabbi, let's move on to Ask HTHLs. We've got a bunch of really good ones, so we'll kind of handle these rapid fire. So I will throw the first one to you. Uh, Mark Harrow asks, how hot is Pork's seat going into the offseason or next season? Mark, there's been a lot of criticism from him regarding both the actions or rather the inactions from the team in the secondary transfer window, maybe the lack of preparation in the winter that happened selling Kellen Acosta, not getting the right replacement whatsoever, and kind of a question of whether or not he's the guy for the job, or maybe it's it's run its course. Mark, your thoughts on, on Pork's um, responsibility and job security? I think his hot seat is about 5% hot, meaning barely at all. Um, 
you know, if he wasn't fired after 2017 when the team came off of a 2016 season in which they were exceptional and then just face planted completely, um, then I think the standard at KSE is the team has to be utterly adrift three seasons in a row before Porak Smith is uh, considered for the chopping block. And I think the logical reason behind that is I don't think anybody who's not a moron in either MLS or even KSC doesn't know that Porek Smith is being asked to make do with chewing gum and bailing wire a la MacGyver in the old TV show that, Matt, you probably are too young to remember. I remember Marge Simpson's yeah. older twin sisters obsessing McGarnacle. with MacGyver. Yeah. So the idea being like you, you, you make do with what you got, right? And I think Porek Smith has been an exceptional general manager considering he's never proper. He hasn't properly had a designated player since Schkels and Gashi and even Gashi wasn't, you know, Gashi, we got one good year and two bad years out of. So um, I don't think his seat is particularly hot at all this season. Check back in with me one year from today and I may have a very different tune. How about, uh, any thoughts, Matt, or do you want to um, rapid fire to the next question? I think Pork's definitely losing confidence with the fan base. But as we've seen, Mark, in generally in sports in terms of losing the fan base or like politically when you've lost the confidence of American people, but not necessarily the people that are in a position to remove you, that doesn't necessarily matter. Is Josh Kroenke, is Stan Kroenke OK with the Rapids just continuing to operate at their operating loss, increasing in valuation due to the nature of MLS expansion and and, you know, rising price and valuations for franchise and everything. And are they not actively starting fires that aren't getting put out very quickly? Is just Josh Kroenke care enough about the Rapids having two disappointing non-playoff years in a row in order to evaluate that? And I think that's a very different question than are Rapids fans trying to turn on Porrick Smith? And if they don't do enough stuff in January and start off next season poorly, are Rapids fans starting to turn on potentially him and Robin Frazier? Next question, Mark, comes from Judgmental Jim. A two-part question. Is it worth keeping Jossi Zardes? Is it worth keeping Felipe Gutierrez? And is it do you keep both? Um, Jim, short answer. I think it's potentially worth bringing back both. I would bring both back at reasonable numbers. I do not want Jossi Zardes back as the most expensive player on the team, budget salary-wise. I would not bring him back for a million dollars a year in 2023. I would bring him back as a non-DP somewhere between 600 and 750K. I don't remember offhand how much Diego Rubio is making. If you told me that Zardes was making that amount or anywhere between that and 150K less than Rubio, I'd be completely fine with it. I'd give him a two-year deal, maybe throw on some performance incentives as well in case he scores 10 goals again or somehow gets called up to the national team, all-star, um, you know, goal boot that kind of stuff maybe with a, a third year team option as well in that so I bring him back at a lower number at a valuation that I think is reflective of his performance and really his short-term value that he's going to have given his age pretty much feel the exact same way about Felipe Gutierrez if they can bring him back for a reasonable transfer fee I would be okay with him being a start one game come off the bench another game midfielder I think he's done enough stuff defensively clearly he has his quality um 
And I think the Rapids are going to have enough depth in the midfield because I think they're going to make a midfield signing. And obviously, you're going to have Ollie LaRoz back and hopefully fully healthy and able to play in every single game next season to where you don't need to bring back Gutierrez and then expect him to play 90 minutes. I would not bring back either of them individually or both of them collectively if that is taking away from, I think, addressing the various serious issues they have in terms of another DP attacker. So I think it's it's kind of, it's it's not these two in a vacuum, Jim, for me. So I think if you bring in, if you bring back Gutierrez, but that doesn't stop you from signing a number eight, then I'm okay with that. If you bring back Zardis and then move the DP transfer fee talk to a winger as opposed to a number nine or a number 10 to then pair with Diego Rubio because you commit to pairing Zardis with Rubio, I'm okay with that. I don't want to bring back Giassi Zardis or Felipe Gutierrez with a transfer fee. It is, it is taking away from those two signings that are going to be younger and long-term solutions to this team's quality and elite attacking talent problems. Rabbi, your thoughts? Uh, Matt, how much would you pay for a free agent striker who scored eight goals and seven assists this this past year? Eight goals and seven. next year. Eight goals and seven assists in Major League Soccer? Yep. Free agent, I don't have to pay a transfer fee. What would I pay him on an annual salary basis? Yeah, what would you offer for a one-year deal? Uh, just just a one year deal. I'd yep. um I'd offer seven hundred fifty k. See if he takes it. I wouldn't go more than nine hundred. Nice. Okay. What would you offer to a guy who had ten goals and two assists? Ten goals. Ten goals and two assists. Um, ten goals and two assists. So twelve goal contributions as opposed to fifteen goal contributions. Um, I'd go five hundred to seven fifty. Nice, Matt. You just offered Kai Kamara. Seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, which would be a Josh, great idea. <laughs> and jo- and offered offered Jossie Zardes five hundred thousand. Now, to be clear, Kai Kamara's contract this year. Do you have any idea what it's worth, Matt? Oh God, is he making league minimum? He's making the senior minimum. He's making ninety four thousand dollars. That's right. You, you didn't give me and the Jossie you didn't Zardes. you didn't give me the age numbers on that, Mark. No, of course not. But that's why it's not fair. But yeah, Kai Kamara is thirty eight years old. So. So the interesting thing, I mean, but I thought that the thought experiment was worthwhile. We haven't ever done that, but that's like a, like in the time that I've known you, Matt, I've never done that to you, which is like, would you, but that's a thing that Total Soccer Show does sometime. Um, it's a thing that you see on Twitter of like people doing blindly with baseball players. Like, which one of these guys would you have? You see a guy with a 348 batting average and ultimately you pick some guy who actually was total trash and because you didn't look at the other numbers. The point that I was making mostly is that like... I don't feel really comfortable with getting Jossie Zardes because he was kind of expensive and he wasn't that productive. Um, and I think we could do better on a one-year thing. Now, Kai Kamara has a whole bunch of other literal uh, baggage that come, well, not literal, but figurative baggage that comes with him. Being 38 years old, not knowing when he's going to fall right off the edge of the cliff. Um, also, you know, he has a reputation of burning himself out of the locker room, just being a big personality that kind of drives everybody nuts after a year or two. Um, but that being said, like, uh, you know, they're very similar players and they're big physical forwards who poach, have a little bit of speed, are great in the air. Um, we kind of need that guy because Diego Rubio is not that guy. But like, I don't feel like the Zardas Rubio or the Kamara Rubio pairings make a lot of sense. There's got to be something else out there that we can go and get that makes a lot of sense. So there's no, anyways, long-winded version of me saying there's no there's no world in which I bring back Jossie Zardes if I'm a GM. 
And there's no world in which I bring back Gutierrez. I just don't know what he's contributed to this team. He's been a below-average replacement for, for Kellen Acosta. I would just much rather find either a new system in midfield or a new player to bring in to do that kind of work. And I think there's a lot of really good options out there in Major League Soccer. Logan F. asks the next question, Mark. Uh, can the Rapids truly be a perennial playoff team? Mark, are they capable of being a perennial playoff team? Uh, can we consider what they've done so far? Given, Let's assume they missed the playoffs, obviously. Can we consider narrowly missing the playoffs in two seasons that went horribly wrong and then making the playoffs twice under Robin Frazier a perennial playoff team? I mean, I think it has mostly to do with our academy um, and whether our academy is going to be productive in the next two to three years. Um, We did an academy review two weeks ago and three weeks ago, um, and I I think that the the big bullet point there was that we shouldn't expect anything coming through the academy in the next couple of years that's going to be really exciting. And McClovio Sweat is the player that I'm kind of most excited about. Darren Yappi, I think, is a player that I'm kind of excited about. Um, and Matt, you you mentioned another one, which is Ali LaRaz, if he comes back healthy. Um, I think Brian Galvan, uh, if we're if we're really kind of got our fingers crossed, Brian Galvan coming back um, at 100% and being really, really good. Those are some decent, those, that's not an academy pickup, but those are some decent young players who could really supplement this team. You add to that one... $1.5 million or $2 million a year DP caliber player from abroad, you know, someone with a with a decent pedigree who comes from Europe or someone who, you know, MLS scouts have been fighting for tooth and nail out of Argentina or out of Mexico. And you do that like two or three years in a row and you've got a decent team. But, you know, I'm not really confident in the academy right now. I think most of our academy players are two years away not one year away, and I'm definitely not confident in this team spending the money. Matt, your thoughts on what it what what are the odds of becoming a perennial uh, playoff team, and what would it take? Can the Rapids become a perennial playoff team? Yes, I would say so. Um, you know, I guess Mark, I think we should start off by defining what a perennial playoff team is. So if I look at active streaks for MLS teams right now, Logan, um, it's Seattle Sounders right now at 13 and New York at 12. I'm not sure if this number is counting New York for this year because they've clinched and obviously Seattle hasn't clinched and their playoff hopes are still in doubt, but they're in a category of their own, Mark. Both teams have made the playoffs for a decade. That's almost unheard of. And then you look at it, it's NYCFC at six, Portland Timbers at five, Philly at four, a couple teams at three, four teams at two, including the Rapids, a couple teams at one, and then obviously half the teams in Major League Soccer, slightly more now, are going to have a active playoff streak of zero because they didn't make the playoffs and everything. So if you're looking at it, Mark, if you make the playoffs three years in a row in terms of that playoff streak, you are in the upper echelon of like the top seven teams in MLS. That's in the top quartile of MLS. I think that's pretty good. And three years over a span, given that, you know, you've probably had some outgoings, you have to sign a homegrown, maybe one year you get bad injuries and everything. One year, the summer doesn't really work. I think that's a big of enough sample size in order to say that you've adapted enough and done enough good things to consistently be a good enough team. Do I think the Rapids can do that? Yes. Do I think they have to get some things right in this offseason? Yes. If they make the playoffs next year comfortably for me, I would average that out as saying, you know, being the last team out or the second to last team out 
in 2019 and then possibly also in 2022, making the playoffs in 2020, obviously first team in the Western Conference. And then I'll say, Mark, I'll, I'll go on record right now. I would consider, based on my definition of perennial playoff team, if the Rapids finish top four in the West next year and host a home playoff game, I will say over the course of the Robin Frazier five-season era that they have been a perennial playoff team. I think the bigger question that I have, Logan, is that, you know, if we go back to the teams that have been perennial playoff teams and everything, you look at it, the ones that have been the the top really consistent ones, Seattle, Red Bull, the t- uh, Seattle, the two New York teams, Portland, and then Philadelphia. You have Seattle Sounders, the class of the uh, of Major League Soccer, the Super Club, over the course of the past decade. You have New York Red Bulls that have done nothing in the playoffs, so they consistently make it, but then they don't have that extra gear. New York that has a good streak now of six. They've won an MLS Cup. They've been competitive. They've won playoff games. Timbers, similarly, are kind of the flip of the New York Red Bulls. They're never a great regular season team. They're always average, but they're a great tournament team, as we've seen uh, when they when they won the MLS's back tournament. And then Philly, which I think are aspiring to become the MLS 3.0 version of Sporting Kansas City, what Sporting Kansas City was in the MLS 2.0 era. But so far to date, Philadelphia has been a really good regular season team. They haven't won that MLS Cup yet. We'll see what happens in the next month or two. But so just being a perennial playoff team doesn't consistently make you likely to win the make you likely to win the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm struggling. Mark, who is the, the really good example I have of this? Um, The Cincinnati Bengals, Mark, had a coach a number of years ago named, I can't remember if it was Lovey Smith or um, it was a black coach and there was a whole conversation about it. Bengals had a coach for a while who could consistently get them into the playoffs. They could win the wild card. They could win their division, but then they could never actually win a playoff game. And so if you're talking about that, you know, do we want the Rapids on the whole of the season? We want them to make the playoffs, Mark. But then I think there's a bigger question of, there, there's the two-part statement to what Porrick Smith always says when he gets asked this question. We want to be a perennial playoff team. We want to bring a second MLS Cup back to Colorado. And is being a consistent playoff team based on how this team is structured, is that possible? Yes. Is it likely? Probably not. Is it difficult? Yes, but can it can be done. But then I think the second part of can they win MLS Cup, and I think there's so many things we've seen for precedent so far that doesn't suggest to me that they can't. Or if it is, it has to be as magical and out of the blue and improbable and unexpected as what the team did in 2010. So... Um, I'm not sure if we've asked your question, Logan, or kind of defined it as our own question, but I think the bigger question is, what can the Rapids then do with that playoffs? And my answer still to date is probably not much. And I know there's a lot of teams, Mark, there's a lot of fans of teams in many sports that consistently make the playoffs, but then they lose and they're like, this sucks. Why can't we go all in and everything? You know, would you rather be a Colts fan in the Peyton Manning era and then only win one Super Bowl, but consistently win the division, but then find ways to have a 500 record in the playoffs, or would you like to be a Giants fan under Eli Manning, where you see the team had a 500 record, but he had two magical seasons that helped them win the Super Bowl? I don't think the Rapids can be the Seattle Sounders. The question is, do you want to be what Philadelphia is trying to become, or do you want to be what historically the New York Red Bulls are and have been? Last Ask HGHL that we have, Mark, a very silly one. I'm not sure if this is going to scan for you, Mark, because I think you were too old to have Pokemon yourself and maybe don't pay attention enough to know whether or not. I don't know if your kids are into Pokemon or if you understand it well enough to have this, Mark. But Logan also asked what would be the uh, what would be the best Rapids Pokemon. And he quote tweeted an account that um, it is a Pokemon wearing sports paraphernalia and it's a rock type Pokemon. It's a newer version. I'll be honest, folks. 
folks I'm older on the Pokemon end as far as I'm concerned there's only 151 of these things but it's wearing a Rocky's hat and a Rocky's jersey mark I suggested Mark thinking this has to be a water rock type of which there are not that many and the one that I came up with is Dreadnought which is like a turtle that has like a weird rock fin thing going through its head and I thought that was a really nice sound. Dreadnought is the onomatopoeia you got when Sam Cronin used the move Rock Tomb on an opponent back in 2016 and it was super effective. Uh, Our friend Joseph Samuelson Mark suggested uh, Militic which is like a it looks like a was water like dragon lizard kind of thing in the back of its tail has some blue and burgundy so maybe a good avalanche or rapids option um and then we also got a suggestion um of uh, i can't remember uh fair fair alligator right i was thinking it's the fully evolved form of totodile i believe uh mark do you know about pokemon do you care about pokemon do you have a recommendation for what would be the rapids pokemon yeah, yeah, my kid, uh, Iggy loves Pokemon for a hot minute, and it wasn't, it didn't last long, but I definitely got into it, because I'm into whatever my kids are into. I'm a big kid. I mean, that's what keeps you young. Um, I think, based on the experience of snowy owls lofting in the stands at, at DSGP, I think it would have to be an owl. Um, I think it would have to be maybe an, an owl kind of like that's like a kind of like dressed up and looking like a psychedelic stoner colored owl as a nod to um our fish fans who take over the stadium uh, you know when I, w- I was joking with somebody the other day um there are two kinds of people in denver colorado the kind of people who know dsgp because they go out there for three days to see fish and the kind who know dsgp because the Colorado Rapids play there. Um, and so I think there's some kind of nod to that. Like, you know, um, it would be like a, an owl named Susie Greenberg or something like that. Like, I know that that's not a very Pokemon sounding name, but like the superpower would be, you know, it turns into a psychedelic rocker with sonic blasts. That would be my, that would be my, po- my Pokemon for the Rapids. Okay. If I'm just looking at the owl Pokemon, if I'm looking, if I'm comparing it, Mark, I, th- I'm pretty sure they're great horned owls that I've seen as the most common species that we have there at DSG. So I think the most, uh, the easiest uh, parallel to that in the Pokemon universe would be knocked owl, which correct me if I'm wrong, I believe is the fully evolved form of hoot hoot. Um, there, there's some, there's some Xennials, Mark, and some Gen Z's who might be dunking on me, you know, cause I'm a boomer over here who's into catching my unknowns and everything and getting you know all four total legendaries that exist um mark i i think that rounds off the show on a nice uh note shall we get out of here indeed friends listeners uh you can support our sponsors icarus fc and roughneck scarves makers of fine apparel for your neck or for your shirt um it is fall soccer season it is all into swing um if you're thinking about refreshing the duds for the playoffs uh, or maybe buying something for the upcoming Qatar uh, World Cup 2022. Uh, you can get it at Icarus FC or Roughneck Scarves. Um, Matt, tell them how to hit us on our socials, how to read our written material, or how to support this fine podcast and Substack. 
Collectively, listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at Rapids96Podcast, at Soccer underscore Rabbi, and at LWS Matt Pollard. Check out all of our written online work at Pittsburgh Soccer Now, lastwordonsports.com backslash soccer, and at holdingthehighline.substack.com. Go to our Substack page and you can view us in web format. You can subscribe to us via email. You can also become a paid Highliner for 5 bucks a month or 42 bucks for the year. Paid Highliners, most of you um, still have the option available to request a specific um content either an article topic or a podcast topic that we will put behind the paywall for you and mark i don't know if we discussed this externally but we announced that at the end of the season so i think if you renew you probably have until the end of 2023 to use those two i think would probably be the most fair ones as well so you can do one for the off season or we'll let it we'll let you roll over one into 2023 but start in 2024 you get one for the year you have to give us another 42 bucks if you want another one of those um and then also if you want to support us further folks uh just in a single cash dump patreon.com backslash rapids 96 podcast listeners i'm not sure about the pod next week because i'm going to be in miami and then prepping to go to maine and mark we'll see how burnt you burnout you are from international duty so tbd on the pod next week to the extent that it still matters mark and i already expressed what we think is going to happen against fc dallas so maybe it does not matter we'll see you when we see you peace Time loan, timeline, time loan, timestamp, time, time bandits, time is on your side.